3: Hello, oh, hello there, welcome to the Euripides was the best playwright podcast, better known as Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv, she who, well, she who will fight to the death over Euripides, because he was amazing and his work are some of the greatest things to ever exist, ever. That's right, you guessed it and I made it very, very obvious with that introductory paragraph. This episode is the beginning of another series Of Euripides, the king of kings, the playwright of playwrights, the writer of the bizarre and wonderful, and most importantly, the women who have personalities and opinions. (sighs) Euripides. And if you think we've loved Euripides in the plays I've covered in the podcast already, well, you just wait until we get into this one. Euripides' Helen is another wild ride, a work of bizarre and beautiful art, Plus, Helen is a ghost, kind of. But before we get too deep into my beloved tragedian and the kind of ghost, I just want to let you all know a couple of things. First, I've been working with the magnificent Michaela, my helper in all things Let's Talk About Myths Baby, to make listening to past episodes of the podcast just a little bit easier. And well, honestly, Michaela's done most of the work because she's the best, so now on mythsbaby.com slash stories, you can find some curated pages with episodes on different topics, plays, concepts, and so much more. They're still in progress, but we're putting up more all the time. And even better, there are Spotify playlists of the same, making it even easier to listen to certain story series and honestly just everything you can imagine, all without scrolling through the almost 400 episodes that exist of this podcast. Just click the link in the episode's description to see all the playlists that we have made. And next is another little teaser of sorts. The details are still to come, and I'm still hammering out when exactly it will start airing, but I can announce that I am doing another special series. Kind of like the Atlantis one from January, but this time we're diving into something very real. Sparta. Pretty fitting, given today's topic, isn't it? Sparta, the mythology, the history, the truth of the ancient Spartans, and most importantly, All the weird and dark bullshit that's been assigned to them over the years and through problematic pop culture. 300. Stay tuned. It's going to be seriously fun and seriously fascinating. I am lining up the experts and Michaela has been researching the hell out of it. It is going to be good. But for now, the most famous Spartan woman and the absolutely wild play that Euripides wrote about her and her equally infamous husband. This is episode 173. What if Helen was a ghost, though? Euripides' Helen, part 1. I've ever truly emphasized the nature of some of the plays by Euripides that survive. I've mentioned it in passing, definitely, probably harped on it a little bit here and there, and have definitely referenced it when speaking with scholars on Euripidean works. But have I ever just sat you all down and fully explained how incredible it is that we have as many plays by Euripides that we do? Because guess what? I'm going to do that right now. Athenian tragedy, that is, the plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the Athenian tragedians that survive, in themselves are obviously some of the most incredible and exciting works to come out of the ancient world. That so many of their works survive is, in itself, a real feat of nature and, generally, humanity. These three playwrights survive because they were the most famous. Aeschylus was famous in his lifetime and afterwards, with people like Sophocles and Euripides looking to his talent when developing their own. He was the earliest by decades, a generation before them when it comes to the writing of tragedy in Athens. Sophocles, as I understand him, was also pretty famous in his time, and definitely more so after his death. Euripides was a bit of an oddball, surprise surprise, and he gained most of his fame down the line. He was still notable back then, but he wrote weird stuff. And that was really memorable to people. And he did win quite a few competitions, though. And he wrote a hell of a lot of plays. Now, the three of them, their work has survived for the most part because they were taught in schools, namely Byzantine schools. They were so appreciated by the people of the Byzantine period, a good thousand years after the playwrights were writing, that their works were preserved for those reasons. They were appreciated, copied when the editions were wearing out. The Byzantine schoolmasters made sure that they always had, say, the Orestia, of Escalis or Sophocles' Antigone or Oedipus Tyrannos on hand. They were copied enough times that they became a real part of the canon of literature, and then finally made their way to us 2,500 years after these plays were written. But there is a whole section of the Euripides catalog of plays that were not school favorites, but we do have today. They were not taught in schools, not appreciated as these like perfect works of ancient art and that needed to be learned from, studied, revered. They were just seen to be like average or maybe even bad. Certainly that's the case for Aeschylus and Sophocles too. They would have written plays that weren't anything special that we might consider bad. That's the nature of humanity, particularly when one is writing quite so much. But we don't have their mediocre work, so we can't compare. We do, however, have some of the works of Euripides that were seen to be mediocre in the ancient and early modern world. And that's because of one random stroke of luck. One random collector who had gathered all of the 92 works of Euripides for his personal collection. One random collector who had all these plays organized alphabetically, and one big scroll that contained all of the Euripides' plays beginning with the letter A. E to Kappa K. That's why we have so many that begin with I and H in English, because they began with Eta or Iota in Greek, the Iphaganias, the Heraclidae, Hippolytus, Hecuba, Heracles, and, yes, the Helen. The survival of so many random plays, rather than those that were specifically deemed worthy of teaching in schools is important not only because it means we just have so many more of Euripides' plays, but because it gives us insights into the others. The weird ones. The ones people didn't necessarily love at the time or afterwards. It lets us look at what it meant to have written 92 plays in one lifetime, and how that means that not all of them were brilliant works of art. Some of them were something else entirely. And I'm not saying any of them are necessarily boring or bad, though I have to admit I have not read all 18 of the surviving plays of Euripides, and certainly Helen isn't boring or I wouldn't be sharing these episodes with you. Instead, the Helen is... weird. Experimental? Odd? A complete departure from the standard story of Helen and Menelaus and the Trojan War? This Helen is a character unto herself. This is Euripides turning the Trojan War and all of its expectations on its head head. It's him examining, yes, you guessed it, the thoughts, feelings, and motivations of women, because he's Euripides, and he was interested in the lives women led, particularly women as notorious as Helen of Sparta, Helen of Troy. The alphabet plays of Euripides, as they're called, give us some of the most important insights into the playwrights broadly, and how their work was received in the ancient world. Plus, it's just seriously so fucking cool that I had to begin an episode with an epic diatribe on how and why we have so many of Euripides' plays surviving. But today is about Helen. The Helen of Euripides, but also Helen of another early writer named... De Sicares, he who invented the ghost theory. <music> ghost theory, you say? Intriguing. I know. And maybe it's wrong to be using the word ghost for this, but it sure caught your attention. And for good reason because not only does it have ghosty elements, but there's a supposed real life curse attached too. Before we get to Euripides and his Helen, we need to talk Stesichorus. Stesichorus was an archaic poet who wrote many, many poems about the Trojan War. As far as I can figure it out, none of his poems survive in full or even big chunks. He was written about later by many, and for so long that we generally know what he wrote and who he was. We know he was an important figure in archaic poetry, particularly relating to the war. See, he's said to have written and sung a poem about the war that described Helen's leaving Sparta for Troy, the usual sailing off with Paris... And he apparently didn't make her look too good in this poem, seeing her more as that kind of traditional Helen that we know, the one who up and leaves her husband and daughter for this hot guy from Troy, because why not? Then, Stesichorus says, he went blind. He says he went blind because he insulted Helen, that divine and beautiful Helen, so, he set to write out another poem to make up for the first, and with any luck, use it to get his eyesight back. As you do, you know, in the ancient world when you're inadvertently angering important divine people. His other poem about Helen is what we're concerned with today. Plato quotes from this poem, which is why we have the line, quote, That was not a true tale. You did not sail in the well-benched ships, nor did you come to the Towers of Troy. He's speaking to Helen. He's trying to take it all back. Stesichorus introduces the idea that Helen never sailed to Troy at all. Of course, he can't just rewrite the entire Trojan War to make one woman happy, make her give him his eyesight back, so he comes up with this workaround. Helen never sailed to Troy with Paris, never got on those ships, sailed away, leaving her husband and daughter behind. But someone did. Instead, Stesichorus says that Paris abducted an Eidolon. An Eidolon isn't a ghost in the modern sense of the word, but honestly it's close enough. An Eidolon is a concept that really isn't seen explicitly beyond this story of Helen in the same way. It's a spirit, a copy even, of a person. She looks like Helen and sounds like Helen, and given the nature of the Trojan War it's pretty clear she was indistinguishable from Helen. But she is not Helen. She's not real. She's just kind of there. But we'll get back to the logistics of the eidolon because while Stesichorus introduces it to the story of the Trojan War, it is this play by Euripides where we get a real story revolving around the idea of the entire Trojan War being fought over ghost Helen. Oh, and what about Stesichorus's eyesight? You ask. Yes, apparently this rewrite of Helen's story, making her good and pure and never having run off with Paris to begin with, was enough to lift whatever curse was put on Stesichorus and he regained his eyesight. Because stories from ancient Greece are fucking awesome. Our story, Euripides' Helen, begins not in Sparta, not in Troy, but in Egypt. This, you see, is where the real Helen has spent all of the Trojan War, while Eidolon Helen has been holed up with Paris. And it opens with a monologue by none other than Helen herself. A woman opens the play and she speaks for a while. Just, you know, try to ignore the fact that she would have been played by a man. We've got to. Her monologue begins with a bang. Quote, so beautiful, so chaste. She continues, speaking of the Nile River and what it brings to the plains of Egypt. Is the Nile River so beautiful, so chaste, or is it this Helen, this Alternate Helen, this Helen who is and will continue to be a complete and utter departure from the Helen we know from literally every other story and source. This Helen is beautiful, but she is also chaste. Helen then introduces the setting of the play, Egypt, and the people there with her. The king, Theoclymenus, who is the son of the now dead king, Proteus, and his sister is there too, Theonui. She's a priestess and a prophetess. But Helen doesn't dwell on Egypt, instead switching to the story of her own life, her parentage in Sparta. She speaks of Tyndareus, her human father, but perhaps not her biological father. For that, she turns the story to Zeus and Leda. There is another story, if it's true, that Zeus became a swan and flew disguised, chased by an eagle, into my mother's bed. And tricking Leta, he achieved his end. There's no sugarcoating this, Zeus. No pretending that it's all well and good and that he did that to Leda because he's a god and he's allowed. Instead, Helen makes pretty clear that it's gross and weird and generally bad. From here, she tells us, and the audience, how she got to be where she is now. She tells us the story of the Eidolon, continuing to turn the story of the Trojan War on its head, and introduce this foreign, odd, and very controversial idea. It's not the real Helen's fault, actually. She speaks of the judgment of Paris, the story we all know so well. Paris brought in to judge a beauty contest between Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera, who is the fairest. Quote, My beauty was what Aphrodite offered, if curses count as beauty, and she won by promising him me. 30 lines into this play and I'm already obsessed with this Helen. What a fucking badass line. But this is where it diverges. Helen goes on to say that Hera, angry at having lost the contest, quote, turned my affair with Paris into wind. She gave King Priam's son an empty image. Not me, but something like me, made of air, but breathing. And that is the Eidolon, sent by Hera, an empty image, not Helen, but something like her, made of air, but breathing.
0: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
3: Helen speaks of the war, of Zeus and his hopes to lighten the weight on Mother Earth by having the Trojans and Greeks kill one another. She speaks of all of this taking place in her name, of the suffering of war, the suffering of the Trojans specifically. Quote, So I, not I, my name, was made the prize, a gift for Greeks, a test for Trojan valor. Hermes, she says, concealed her in folds of air and brought her to the house of Proteus in Egypt, apparently, quote, picking the most self-disciplined of humans to save the purity of my marriage bed for Menelaus. She speaks of the curse upon her that for all of the rest of the world knows, she is the Helen they think she is, a woman who abandoned her family, her husband, for another man, flying off to another world where she cheated on her husband. That everyone thinks she is who the Idolon is. And finally, the most important detail. While the king of Egypt, Proteus, was alive, she was protected. He was kind and good. She was safe. She could continue to protect herself against men who wanted her. She could continue to be faithful to Menelaus, which... Importantly, this Helen is very passionate about. She loves her husband. But now, Proteus is dead. And she explains, quote, His son is hunting to marry me. I'm here to throw myself on Proteus's tomb. I'm praying to save myself from my original husband, whom I honor. Even if my name is smirched through Greece, my body will never be tainted here. Have I mentioned how much I love Helen? How much I love Euripides' ability to give women true voices, personalities, passions, desires? With Helen's introduction out of the way, we know what's going on. We know that she is in Egypt, that her eidolon, a ghost of her, is in Troy, where the whole of the world is still fighting over her, or at least they have been. It's come to an end now, because there's a Greek, who's just landed on the shores of Egypt, and he's startled to see this woman who looks an awful lot like Helen, the creature they've just spent ten years fighting over. sir, brother of Ajax, and man whose name I hate trying to pronounce in English because it's just not natural, has arrived in Egypt, and he sees Helen. Quote, Oh gods, what's this? It looks like that most hated murderess of me and all the Greeks. May the gods curse you, counterfeit Helen. Counterfeit Helen. Oh. The first few lines of anyone other than Helen really hammer in what's going on. Helen might know that she's the real Helen, but no one else does. Helen doesn't confirm or deny who she is, that she is Helen, but Tucer seems to realize that it can't be her. He's just sacked Troy over her. This is just a woman who looks like her so they speak. He explains why he's there, so far from his home in Salamis. He's been exiled by his father for his brother's death in Troy. Ajax, you might remember, fought over Achilles' armor after his death, and when he lost, he threw himself on his own sword. There's more to it, of course, but this isn't about Ajax. We just need to know who Tucer is what he's gone through, and why he's there in Egypt, speaking with Helen, who he doesn't think is Helen. They speak of the war. Helen asks every question she's had in her mind for so many years. How long were you there? What happened? How long has it been since Troy was sacked? And this is where we learn that it's been seven years since Troy was sacked, making it seventeen years since she was first removed from Sparta. She continues her questioning. Did you ever recapture the Spartan woman, she asks, referring to herself? She's told, yes. Quote, Menelaus dragged her by the hair. She confirms that Tucer actually saw this happen with his own eyes, saw Helen herself being dragged away by Menelaus. She's trying to feel out the eidolon of it all. Then she asks if she were real, this Helen, or an apparition from the gods. And he changes the subject. Helen pushes back, though. She has to know as much as she can about her Eidolon, and more importantly, her husband. Is this sighting of Helen trustworthy, she asks him. She must know how real this idolon was. How much it fooled even the man she's been waiting for all this time. But Teucer is convinced it was Helen. He says that she and Menelaus went off together from Troy, but he adds, when she asks, he hasn't returned to Mycenae or to Sparta, and Menelaus might have even disappeared with his wife. Helen is, rightfully, pretty distraught by this. The gods removed her from her home, they sent this fake Helen to cause horrible trouble in her place. (sighs) Most importantly, though, she just loves her husband, and she's relying on him to finally find her and bring her home to Sparta. Now that this king Proteus is dead and his son is trying to force her to marry him, her prospects aren't looking great without Menelaus. But... She realizes, Tucer can also give her information about the others that she was forced to leave behind in Sparta. She asks about her mother, how she is. Dead, he tells her. Dead for shame of Helen's actions. Oof, that's a blow. What of her brothers, she continues, the Dioscuri, Castor and Polydeuces. They're dead too, he says, and Helen's heart breaks just a little bit more. The consolation there, though, is that he tells her that maybe the gods actually placed them in the sky as stars. Except, he adds, there's another story where they also killed themselves because of what their sister did. The blows to Helen keep coming. The news is bad enough if she had actually gone off to Troy with Paris, either by her own will or otherwise, but this new story, this idea that she never went with him at all, that she's just been waiting for this news in Egypt for 17 years makes the whole mess so much more tragic and emotional. So many people died for her on her ghost, put there at the will of the gods. Euripides does love to blame the gods for human tragedy, and I am always here for it. Finally, Helen has gotten all of the information that Teucer has to offer her, all without revealing the truth of who she is, let alone the truth of the Helen that the Greeks and the Trojans witnessed in Troy. When he's finished answering her questions, he asks something of her. Where is Theonoe, the prophetess, the princess? He wishes to see her for news on his own travels, how it is that he should reach Cyprus. Helen shuts that right down. She tells him he can't stay there in Egypt, can't be seen for even a second by the king, Theoclymenus. He kills all Greeks on sight, she explains, but adds that she can't and won't explain why. All that matters is he mustn't stay there. He has to leave immediately. He's grateful for this information. He takes her advice without question, and before he leaves, he adds, quote, Your body is like Helen's, but your heart is very different, not at all alike. May she die and never reach the banks of the Eurotas, but to you, good luck. Ugh, the dramatic irony. Euripides is really playing with the audience, playing with the Greeks, just amping everything up. Who is Helen, and who is this Eidolon? What can she be blamed for, and what is the fault of this divinely sent ghost? What? is real, and what is invented. With that, sir is gone, and Helen is left to feel the full weight of everything she's just learned. Her husband, who she loves and misses, is missing with the ghost of herself who's caused so, so much violence and death. Her mother and her brothers have died, all because of the same ghost of Helen, and she's still stuck in Egypt, fending off a horrible man who wants to marry her against her will. Things are not looking good. But this is Euripides, after all. Helen sings, trying to convey her emotions to the audience. She begins by calling upon the muses. To whom should she direct her song? And then she finds her voice, quote, Fly to me on your wings, young daughters of the earth. Sirens, bring to my cries of mourning a Libyan oboe or pipes to harmonize with my grief. Tune your tears to mine and sing my songs. Match your melody to my lament so that the queen of death Persephone may gain a gift from me of a tearful hymn to the dead. Fuck, that's beautiful. Here she is, sitting with her grief, her immense sadness, and she calls upon the divine women she knows can feel her pain, can sympathize to the muses, to the sirens, those creature women who sing so beautifully that they cause death, and to the goddess of death, the queen of death, the woman who also lost her own mother, in a way, and who knows the pain and sadness of loss. What's most important, though, is she knows to call to the women She knows the women will understand her, will see the truth in all that's happened, in all the death and tragedy and sadness. From here, the chorus picks up her song. They are women, of course, and they continue Helen's song of women. Theirs, though, is tragic in other ways. They sing of a time when they heard a woman's cries. Wailing. Quote, a sad song that no liar could play. They sing that she was wailing, crying, screaming across mountains and through caves because she was being raped by Pan. It is not unimportant that the first lines of the chorus in this play are about a woman being assaulted by a god, and that the chorus is specifically likening Helen's wails of sadness to that particular sound. It is Euripides, and the gods are so often the real antagonists of his play. Here, they are the ones behind the Eidolon, behind helen being removed to egypt the ones behind the war that's killed so many and in being behind so many things they're the cause of her mother's death her brothers even her missing husband and then we're reminded of the horrors they commit against humans particularly women it is explicit here that this is a violent assault by a god that the chorus is recalling bringing up out of almost nowhere. It's a suggestion of what the gods are capable of, and perhaps even a hint at what could be in store for Helen if she's forced to remain there in Egypt. They continue on, Helen and the chorus singing back and forth as Helen tells them what she's learned, and they in turn sing to her of her grief.
2: Oh, beloved
3: nerds, I am so excited to be diving into this play by Euripides. Obviously, I'm so obsessed with him, that's not news. But this, I actually had no idea of the details of this play until very recently. I didn't know about the Eidolon at all, and yet it's the most interesting thing I've ever heard. The idea that Helen was just not there, ever. That she never set foot in Troy. Ugh. I learned the truth of this, Helen, from a conversation that will air soon. As we get closer to the end of the play, with C.W. Marshall, a scholar who has studied this play in detail, even written a book on it. And man, did he blow my mind with that chat. Cannot wait for you to hear it. But best of all, it led me to reading and studying this play, a play that is absolutely wild and magical. Huge thank you, as always, to Ash Strain, who is infinitely helpful when I cover plays. Ash gives me these detailed notes on the plays, and they're so helpful and fun. So thank you, Ash, as always. Next week, more Helen, more Eidolon, and most importantly, Euripides' take on Menelaus. Just you wait. Also, a new bonus series of the podcast is coming next week. Something a little different and very fun. Stay tuned. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Particularly research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by a cast. You are all the absolute best. I do hope you love your antibodies as much as I do. Whew. I am Liv, and I love this shit.
0: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where America goes to
1: hire. This is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue global. When you come back with a Purdue global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob.